Hello and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping today at 10 a.m. Friday, March 15th. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Stephanie Armour, The Wall Street Journal. Good morning. Rebecca Adams of CQ Roll Call. Thanks for having me. And Alice Olstein of Politico. Hello. And our weekly reminder, if you want to see us as well as hear us, an edited version of the podcast is now on the cable channel Newsy at 11 a.m. Eastern every Sunday. So we got President Trump's proposed budget for the fiscal year that begins in October. And pretty much like every presidential budget, this one is not going to be adopted by Congress. But a presidential budget is an important statement of policy direction for an administration. It tells us what they would like to do if they could. So where does this administration think we should be going on health policy? There's quite a lot there. Who wants to jump in? Stephanie, you wrote a quickie budget story. Right, right. Um, well, there weren't, to me, a lot of huge surprises in this. The cuts that we're talking about to Medicare, if you really look at them, a lot of them have to do with hospital and doctor reimbursements. Um, not all that atypical if you compare it to what was done under the Obama administration. A lot of the proposals were actually the same, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. Um, to me, what was especially interesting was were, you know, some of the changes to the Affordable Care Act, along with the, you know, idea of repeal still being there, but also the the shift in Medicaid, um, the idea of this, quote unquote, block grant system that would give states really wide latitude. I mean, we already knew the Trump administration wanted to do this, and we see some states moving in that direction. But it was just interesting to see that how much focus is being put on this, um, because these are really startling changes to Medicaid. So that is probably, to me, kind of what was the eyebrow-raising part. Um, There are obviously a lot of elements that people will be picking over and talking about for quite some time. Yeah, there's a giant cut to the National Institutes of Health, which has always been bipartisanly popular. But I want to stay on Medicaid for a minute. It's it's what, like $1.4 trillion less money over 10 years? Rebecca, you're nodding. That's right. Yeah, it's, it's very similar to what they proposed last year. The Medicare cuts are also somewhat we'll similar get to, that in a sec. <laughs> to what they proposed last year. And um, I don't, I think you're right that Congress is not going to act on any of this, but it is very politically risky for the administration to go down this path because we saw Joe Biden, who may be running for president, immediately come out and say they want to cut your Medicare, your Medicare by $845 billion. And so I think that, you know, hospitals and other providers, they are very upset about it. And you, you can talk about the nuances, how, you know, most of this is related to drugs or to hospital payments. So you're back it's to Medicare. Not, okay. that, Medicare. We were talking about Medicaid, but no, let's Sorry. let's talk about Medicare. We'll come back to Medicaid because I know a lot of a lot of budget, um, you know, sort of experts were infuriated that everybody was sort of focusing on that $845 billion number because that's not really the real number. Some of that money, I mean, it's not really a cut. Some of that money is just being transferred to other places that the, the actual reduction 
production is more like five hundred billion dollars. And as HHS secretary, small, yeah. But as as HHS secretary Alex Azar pointed out repeatedly in his three hearings before congressional committees this week, um, most of the vast majority of that money would come from, as Stephanie said, providers, um, and it would actually, in many cases, make beneficiaries out of pocket costs less. But as I like to say, karma's a bitch, and this was how (laughs) this was how the Affordable Care Act was paid for by reductions to provider uh, reimbursement in Medicare. And the Republicans ran relentlessly on what they called Medicare cuts in 2010. That was actually bigger than any other thing they had to say about the Affordable Care Act. It was all about the Medicare cuts. And so now, Mm -hmm. you know, now we're seeing the reverse, that they're pretty much the same changes. And yet now Democrats are going to beat up on Republicans for proposing Medicare cuts. And are going to remind everyone that President Trump specifically campaigned on not cutting (laughs) Medicare um, in contrast to his opponents in the Republican primary. We were already seeing a lot of resurfacing those those old tweets and speeches uh, and and portraying this as a broken promise with an eye on the re-election in 2020. Yeah, that it's, you know, Medicare, they don't call Medicare the third rail of politics for nothing. I was really struck by how much uh, lawmakers, Republican lawmakers on Capitol Hill this week, didn't even pretend to support these uh, proposed budget cuts, um, especially in the health space. I went to the hearing on the House side with Secretary Azar and. Um, Which one? There were two. The <laughs> Appropriations Committee, the House Appropriations Labor HHS subcommittee. And the top Republican on that committee, Tom Cole, his opening statement was just brutal about the budget cuts. He said, you know, we we talk about needing defense spending and increasing defense spending. I consider um, the CDC, for instance, just as much about the defense of our country from infectious diseases, which he pointed out are more likely to kill someone than a terrorist attack or war. Um, and so he really viewed uh, the cuts as, as dangerous and risky and um, just had very negative things to say about it, although praised the areas of investment um, in uh, that are in this budget in combating tobacco use and combating HIV, et cetera. On oh. HIV, I thought it was interesting that they proposed this $241 million to end transmission in the United States, but then they whacked the global health budget for HIV so by a much larger amount. So that was kind of interesting. Yeah, America were, first, right? There were a lot of places in that budget. I was amused, though. I watched that hearing and that, you know, they, they, sort of the old saw is that there are really three kinds of legislators in Congress. There's Democrats, Republicans, and appropriators. <laughs> Exactly. And I yes. thought that, that that Congressman Cole's, you know, statement mm-hmm. was very much speaking more as an appropriator and less as a Republican. Um, you know, this sort of this is and he and he said and he's he's right. It's hard to balance the budget off of the, you know, the 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 domestic discretionary portion of it, the part that Congress has direct annual year-to-year control over, which is getting to be every year less and less compared to, you know, the big programs that are on autopilot like Medicare and Medicaid. But before we leave this, I do want to come back a little bit to to Medicaid, though, which is where we started, because it would really be a dramatic, if the administration were to get its way, which means Congress would have to do something, they would basically, you know, give Medicaid, rather than having this federal state program where the feds basically set the rules and states pay their share, they would basically turn turn Medicaid back to the states and say, do what you want. Which you kind of see states asking for. You see Tennessee, right, right. Um, You see 
um, Utah is potentially at second leg in terms of these funding changes, and you see the Trump administration saying we want to give you more and more latitude, I think the question is really going to be, and it's going to be close, we really need to watch, how much latitude is that going to be? What are states going to be approved to do? And if they are, what kind of litigation will ensue? I, I think this is going to be sort of the next battle line after work requirements which we'll get to in a second. So so one last thing um, but before we leave the budget, one of the things that Secretary Azar said over and over to Congress is that the reason these cuts are so deep, um, because, you know, nobody, I don't think anybody really thinks they're going to cut the NIH by, you know, four and a half billion dollars or yeah. the CDC by, what is it, almost two billion dollars. Right. They've um, been giving two billion dollars yeah. extra a year yeah. for NIH for the past few years. But the, but the reason the cuts are deep, as Azar said, is because we're living in this world where these spending caps come back into play. The Congress passed in 2011. 11. So are we going to have another big conflagration about spending uh, at, at, uh, before the beginning of the fiscal year in October? Is, is our September going to be spent again, uh, wondering if the government's going to get shut down? They do need to address the spending caps. They do need to raise the debt limit. They need to take care of these things. I think there is an interest in doing this as they have in the past, but Congress is not functioning on all cylinders right now. So we will see if they are actually able to do it. Oh, so now we have the Democrats in charge of the House. So. Right. It, right. They're going to actually have to get together if they're going to do these things that are, that 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 need to be done. But Congress never really it's never pleasant sort of nobody wants to vote for the, the debt ceiling um, uh, increase, even though it would sort of ruin the nation's credit if they don't. So it, it, it's always it, 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 we frequently see brinksmanship when it comes to this. And I think this is just sort of starting the clock down on this brinksmanship. Yes. Yes. Everybody is not. Yeah. Yeah. OK. Next, uh, a federal district court judge here uh, in Washington on Thursday heard oral arguments in two lawsuits challenging the Trump administration's waivers, allowing Arkansas and Kentucky to require, quote unquote, able-bodied Medicaid recipients to either work or lose their coverage. We've talked about both of these uh, programs over the past months in Arkansas, the first state where the work requirements have actually taken effect. More than 18,000 people have lost their coverage for failure to meet the reporting requirements, which I would add parenthetically, were in and of themselves highly complicated. Uh, the judge said that he would rule by the end of the month. Any hints as to which way that we think he might be leaning? Well, two things. I think the ex- expectation all along has been that this judge will sorry, side with the plaintiffs. That's I don't think there's any big surprise there. I just want to throw out one really interesting thing in some conversations I was having with uh, Arkansas this week. They're really trying to contest that 18,000 number now and saying that, you know, it was really more like 4,500 if you do a first of the month to the first of the month uh, analysis. So I think that they're definitely getting some some push on this. And I think the cases um, are important to watch. Largely, even though we kind of have a sense where this one's going to go, you are seeing some other Republican states who are or, or some other states where they're considering work requirements who are kind of being a little bit more hesitant, um, even though the, the, the marching is still largely toward that. And and this judge is the same one that blocked the Kentucky. The first version. The right. first version right. of the Kentucky work requirements from going into effect. And so that's a big piece of where where The issue is the deadline, April 1st. Mm-hmm. And Governor Bevin has very much made clear in his executive order that he would end expansion, wrote that order to get it started should the courts block it. The question is, th- this isn't the final word. So what will happen? Yeah, we've got sort of odd political situations in every state. Secretary Azar got asked about this repeatedly this week at, at his budget hearings. And, you know, he was trying to make the case and, and uh, uh, before the Senate Finance Committee, 
you know, he even had some numbers saying, well, the vast majority of people didn't appeal losing their Medicaid and didn't try to reapply. Um, And therefore, he said that was proof that these people found jobs with insurance, insurance, which is, of course, not what the people reporting this on the ground are finding. What they're finding is that the the bureaucracy is so cumbersome that that they can't, that they they're having, give up. yeah, that they're having difficulty getting through, that they're, you know, there's computer issues. And yes, they added a phone line, but apparently the phone line has an incredibly complicated tree and keeps you on hold. And that, you know, I, I, I was sort of interested in, in Azar's, you know, per, perhaps questionable argument that, that I don't I don't think that would stand up in a court of law, let me put it that way. Well, they just haven't provided proof that, that that's what happened to all of those people who didn't re-enroll in Medicaid, that they didn't re-enroll because they found work. There's just... We, well, we don't a lot have... of them, I mean, as we know, a lot of them were working, they just didn't have health insurance. Right. So, and that and that was the issue was that these were people who needed the med were working, needed the Medicaid coverage because they were working. They had trouble navigating the bureaucracy to actually report their hours. So, mm-hmm. one of the main dilemmas before the court right now is um, the state is saying Arkansas is saying if you if you get rid of the work requirements now, if you strike them down, then that'll disrupt this experiment. So, Medicaid waivers are supposed to be an experiment, so a state can show you know, positive impacts of a new policy like work requirements. And if you halt it just a few, really a few months into the implementation, that doesn't give us the full scientific picture of what this policy will do. And on the other side, the plaintiffs are saying, look, tens of thousands of people, and it's only going to increase, are losing their coverage. And um, the harm to those people outweighs the value of the experiment. And it's interesting, too, in the president's twenty. 20 budget request, he put uh, nationwide Medicaid work requirements. Right. So do what you want. Give the power back to the states, except you have to do work requirements. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's why we have budgets, so they can say what they would like to see. Um, all right. Meanwhile, over at the FDA, even though Scott Gottlieb is on his way out, he's filling his last weeks with more regulating. This week, his target is teens and vaping. New regulations would make it harder still for underage consumers to get their hands on flavored e-cigarette products, uh, said the the commissioner in a statement, quote, we'll prioritize enforcement to prevent the access and appeal of these products to kids. So what happens to all of this sort of tough regulatory stance when Scott Gottlieb is no longer the head of the FDA. Well, Secretary Azar said this week that this was his agenda, too, and he supports it, and he is going to push it forward. We're going to see the head of the National Cancer Institute come in and be the acting administrator for FDA. So he says he also supports changes to make it a little bit tougher on e-cigarette manufacturers. It's interesting, though, a lot of people are giving Scott Gottlieb a lot of credit for pushing forward on e-cigarette manufacturers. But if you talk to public health advocates, there's sort of a mixed record there. I mean, Scott Gottlieb is also the person who pushed off regulation of the e-cigarette industry. I mean, we would have regulation and oversight of this industry right now if Scott Gottlieb had not delayed that. So what he's doing is sort of partially walking that back. He's saying that for certain e-cigarettes, those that are certain flavors, then they would um, come under some oversight and he would move up the compliance date by one year for those e-cigarettes. 
but it's sort of a half measure. You know, one thing I had missed until I started to to kind of read more deeply into this, and and also came up in the in the hearings of Secretary Azar, is that FDA says it is in fact on its way to regulating nicotine to non addictive levels, um, and and that's both tobacco products and and non tobacco products, which I had somehow somehow missed in all of this. I know that that was what Congress, when Congress, you know, wrote the passed the law that gave FDA power to regulate. Um, you know, tobacco and and nicotine products. I didn't realize that they actually were fairly serious about saying, you know, we're gonna we're gonna make this. We're gonna it's gonna remain available to some extent, um, but we're gonna make it non addictive. Is that I'm people certain... will buy a bunch more packs, <laughs> <laughs> perhaps. But I'm I'm just, just sort of it seems it yeah. seems so. You know, if you told me this 20 years ago that a Republican administration, which wants to turn Medicaid back to the states, would at the same time be pursuing a policy to to reduce nicotine in products to, mm-hmm. to non-addictive levels, mm-hmm. I would have said, yeah, no, that's not going to happen. It's really the outlier in their deregulation agenda across yes. the entire rest of the government. It really is. All right. Uh, Meanwhile, on Capitol Hill, Democrats are starting to push back against some of the things the Trump administration has done over the past two years that the Republican Congress didn't want to address. Uh, This week's case in point is the House Energy and Commerce Committee launching an investigation into companies selling short-term limited-duration health plans. We've talked about those. They're ones that don't have to cover every service and can deny you renewals if you get sick. The announcement from the committee says that consumers are being denied coverage even for care that's supposed to be covered. Uh, or plans are declaring that conditions are pre-existing even when they're not. How much is this uh, an effort to build on voter concern about health as an issue, which we obviously see is still a big campaign issue? And how much might be an effort to actually get Congress to rein these plans back in? Well, they're already starting efforts in Congress to rein the plans back in. They have bills in the House and Senate and have tried to hold votes, and they, they may they may pass it in the House um, to um, roll back these plans to the previous three-month limit instead of the full-year limit that they currently have, making them compete directly with the comprehensive Obamacare plans. Um, I happened to be at a HIP conference right when Chairman, the insurance industry trade group. <laughs> Chairman Pallone uh, made this announcement. So we were, were they the happy or not? I mean, I, I think a lot of those insurers don't like the competition from you know, these short-term plans. So all all, that's, some of them sell all them. that's happening is they're sending letters to these companies requesting information. That's all that's happening so far. So what, what the Energy and Commerce Committee is doing is they're asking um, these insurance companies and, and brokers and other entities that are involved in selling these short-term plans right now for information on what benefits do you cover? What kind of health questionnaires do you make applicants fill out when you're selling them plans? What are your marketing materials like? How are you marketing these plans? Are you disclosing that they don't cover some basic services? What the committee is trying to determine is, are these plans being marketed in a deceptive way where people don't know what they're getting into? They think they're getting this awesome, cheap plan, and then they find that when they actually get sick and need care, that it's not covered. So that that's what they're trying to determine. And so it's not a full crackdown yet. It's the first step in requesting information and the oversight may lead to some sort of regulation down the road. I'm hard pressed to imagine Republicans voting to rein in these short-term health plans. And a lot of these problems with short-term health plans were already known and existed previously. It's hard to, on some extent, to see where this goes. 
um, other than this being an, uh, another one of those examples of Democrats kind of fighting back and really trying to draw attention that they're trying to tackle the health concerns that may be out there. I could be wrong. No, no, no. no I, th- I think you're, you're right. right. I think, you know, if they were to push forward on a bill, I think it could pass the House, but I don't think it could pass the Senate. And I think, you know, the Republicans will say, oh, look, under the Obama administration, they allowed this, too. They allowed it to go up to a, a full year. So uh, some differences in yeah, the they details. Yeah, they but... scaled it back in, like, right before mm-hmm. they walked out yes. the door, yeah. as I yeah. recall. In 2016. Yeah. Right. So it's interesting. I mean, and we're seeing more mainstream insurers offer these, too. We have have United offering these. We have Blue Cross plans offering these. But we don't actually know how many have been sold, right? Not as many as – there was an estimate that came out recently that said it was not as much as people had expected. Yeah, because I mean the big fear was that healthy people who can buy these plans would go out and buy them instead of buying more comprehensive plans you know, on the Affordable Care Act exchanges and that would make the Affordable Care Act ex- exchange population that much sicker and premiums would go up that much more. I mean that was – that, and I think that was the concern also when the Obama administration finally tried to, to rein them in is that they didn't want this to be sort of an outlet for people, for healthy people um, because they wanted to keep – some of those healthy people in the in the the more comprehensive insurance pool. Um, I was interested in this too, though, just to because I think people forget that Congress sometimes does oversight because they haven't done it in so long. <laughs> oh, they're doing it this year, that, though. That, that, that's what the, I mean. This is actually part of the you know big part of the committee process has usually been. I mean, they do things. They have hearings on bills that they intend to pass, but they also just do investigations into things that they think maybe aren't going well. And this one would one would presume that this would be one of them, right? House Democrats are going to be pretty aggressive, I think, in their investigations. And we're also seeing in the Senate folks like Finance Committee Chairman Chuck Grassley is going to be pretty aggressive in his oversight, too. And, and I guess some of it, you know, on the on the drug price front, I think it's sort of a combination. A lot of it is oversight. I know the House investigations, uh, uh, oversight and investigation subcommittee is going to look at uh, insulin prices. I think the Senate is also looking at insulin prices. That seems to be one of those where they, you know, they Congress can sometimes, sometimes Congress can change things without passing new laws. And I think that's what some of this is aimed at. But uh, it, it's, I guess, there is still a ways to go. Uh, all right. Finally, this week, there's lots of news on the reproductive health front. But one of the things I think we all may look back at at some point and say, hmm, was a decision out of the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, the full Court of Appeals, that said Ohio can defund Planned Parenthood, not from the Federal Family Planning Program, Title X, or from Medicaid program, but from a series of other federal public health programs. Alice, you wrote about this case. What do you think it suggests for these other bigger fights about Planned Parenthood? Yeah, I think it it's a good example of two big national trends. One is just the massive impact that these uh, Trump-nominated and Senate GOP-confirmed uh, judges are having across the country. This decision had four Trump-nominated judges weighing in on, on the majority, allowing the state to cut Planned Parenthood out of these programs. I think you're going to see this impact more and more. The Senate is trying to confirm more and more judges at a very rapid pace. And I think we're going to see the effect of that on these uh, reproductive rights cases, as well as many, many other topics. I think the other thing this case shows is just how courts across the country are grappling with what public dollars can and should go to Planned Parenthood and what can be cut away. You mentioned the Title X rule out of the Trump administration that is 
going to be considered by courts any day now. Bunches of courts. Bunches of courts. I have a spreadsheet. <laughs> Many lawsuits. You need that. <laughs> and so that's an attempt to cut Planned Parenthood nationally out of the Title X family planning program. Um, and so tens of millions of dollars are at stake in that case. And then there are state attempts to cut Planned Parenthood out of Medicaid, which the Supreme Court said in December they are not going to hear for now. And so that's going to keep percolating throughout the courts. And Although, then, Yeah, we should point out that that, that actually really would take a change in yes. the law. And as uh, Republicans discovered much to their dismay in 2017, it's not only going to take a change in the law, it's going to take a 60-vote change in the Senate in the law. So that for the moment, they are blocked on that that score. Right, right. And so I just think this this entire area of what public dollars can go to Planned Parenthood to provide care for this low-income population is going to be something courts are grappling with. In this case, um, it's programs that have nothing to do with abortion. They're related to um, in reducing infant mortality, reducing sexually transmitted infections, a bunch of sort of basic state public health programs. And um, now uh, Planned Parenthood is going to be uh, cut off from that funding in Ohio. In Ohio. Yes. Well, we'll see whether other states sort of follow suit along that score. But I was I was interested, and I'm glad you mentioned the, the Trump judges, because I think it was, there wasn't it two lower court decisions or, or one, that, but there was a lower court decision that found they couldn't do it. And the, the, the full court decision, yes. the full court. Yeah, the district court and then a three-judge panel said uh, Ohio can't do this, and the full on bank court, right, yeah, came right. in and overturned that. Plus, the person who argued the case on behalf of Ohio against Planned Parenthood was just <laughs> confirmed to be a judge on that circuit. <laughs> These elections have consequences, and they have consequences in the judiciary, which I think that people... That will last for a long time. And not just at the Supreme Court, which I think is kind of important to remember. All right. It is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read, too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org. Rebecca, why don't you go first this week? Sure. I chose Medicare for All Gets Buzzy in Unexpected Places. Uh, This is by Kaiser Health News. Uh, Shafali Luthra did this one. And it was interesting because it was talking about places in the South and other places where activists are pushing very strongly on Medicare for All, the idea of shifting to a single-payer system, which would be a dramatic shift in our country. It's It would be pretty significant, and, and I think it's unlikely to happen anytime soon. But, but it was you would think in the conservative South it would be least likely to pick up steam. That's exactly right. One thing that I liked in here, a little bit of color, was that the catchphrase is Medicare for y'all down there. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. <laughs> Stephanie. I love that. That's wonderful. I'm going to read it just for that. Um, I picked another story from Kaiser Health News by uh, Judith Graham, um, Understanding Loneliness in Older Adults and Tailoring a Solution. Um, I thought this was interesting for two fronts. One, it showed what large major insurers are actually trying to do in this area in terms of programs that they believe may help alleviate loneliness, which shows that they're really seeing this as a bottom line issue, which um, – is kind of a, a fascinating trend to watch. And secondly, it was really interesting because buried in there was some statistics that found it's actually a small percentage of seniors that are at the highest risk, uh, which was kind of a reassur- kind of a hopeful sign, I thought, as well, because we hear so much more about this these days, and I think that attention is really important. But um, that was a bit of good news in there, too. I was fascinated by sort of the 
first of all, that I mean, I know that loneliness is becoming a big public health issue. I mean, in Britain, it's, you know, it's a huge issue for their National Health Service. But I was interested that there were sort of different kinds of Yes, of different kinds of loneliness. Four different kinds. Yeah. Yes. Um, which, which, One was, I forget, it had to do with like not feeling that you were valued as a part of society. And and one was you know not having intimate you know family or, or right. social the ties. kind of the ones you would think of yeah but that not feeling valued in society was well, you can definitely say in the United States um, I will take an opinion on this that we are not there's a lot of sort of we tend to push seniors aside a bit more I say this as I get older um, <laughs> so I think that the attention to this issue is especially significant. I liked this piece by Jeffrey Young in Huffington Post taking a look at what's happening in Utah with the embattled Medicaid expansion that um, folks in the state uh, by a significant majority voted for in November, voted for full Medicaid expansion under the Affordable Care Act on the ballot initiative. It's a pretty high bar in Utah to get even get something on the ballot initiative and get it approved. And they did that. And the state legislature uh, is uh, attempting to uh, alter that outcome and go for a partial expansion that only goes up to the federal poverty line instead of um, the higher uh, amount um, set by the Affordable Care Act. And um, he talked to some of the folks who led the drive on the ground to get the signatures to get on the ballot. And what really struck me is that so many of them, this is the first they've ever been involved in politics. And then to see the legislature come in and and sort of undo their work was extremely disheartening. Um, Although a lot of them said, you know, partial expansion is better than no expansion. And if some people can get covered, then, you know, we did good. Although then you could argue, would other states start to look at right. partial Rolling it back. Could yeah. exactly. yeah. they open the door? That's, and that's been the debate. And over we don't know yeah. what the Trump administration is going to allow in Utah and other places on that question. Yes, they've, they've been very mum on this issue. I'm I think the White House is not sure either. It's an it's a issue of debate there. I'm surprised that nobody asked about it at all of those. All of these hearings with the secretary this week, I don't think it came up. It was all about the work requirements, but I don't think anybody asked about partial. I think they asked about the block, the block granting, yeah, right, right, Um, but not that's not about this stage in Utah, yeah, Yeah. Yeah. not about this. All right, well, I have two stories um, that are closely related. One is by Emma O'Connor and Vera. Bergengruen from BuzzFeed. It's called Military Doctors Told Them It Was Just, quote, Female Problems. Weeks later, they were in the hospital. The other is by Jennifer Steinhauer at the New York Times called, quote, Treated Like a Piece of Meat, Federal Female Veterans Endure Harassment at the VA. Both are about the inability of two medical systems long dominated by males, the military health system that serves active duty personnel and the VA, which serves veterans, and how they're having trouble adapting to the idea that more and more women are serving their country in the military, including including on the front lines. The BuzzFeed story talks about interviews with more than a dozen current and former female service members who told similar stories of being, quote, brushed off, misdiagnosed, and provided wrong treatments by military doctors around the world. The New York Times story details a, quote, entrenched sexist culture at many veterans' hospitals that is, quote, driving away female veterans and lags far behind the gains women have made in the military in recent years. Also, the VA story points out that because there are so many more uh, women in the active duty military, that there will be that many more female veterans, and they better kind of get their act together. Um, Both stories are well worth your read. So that is our show for this week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also appreciate it if you left a review on iTunes. That helps other people find us too. Also, as usual, you can email us your questions or comments. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org, or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. At Alice Olstein. 
at Steph Armor One at Rebecca Adams DC. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. 